0: All right, Lone Star Gunners, welcome to Lone Star Gun Talk. I am your host, as always, Derek Wills, and I am really looking forward to today's show. Today, we are going to be talking about gun control, and I know we've been talking about that for a while now, but this is going to be a a special one, because with us today, we have a special guest, and that is Ed Scruggs. From Texas Gun Sense. I'm sure everybody here knows who Texas Gun Sense is. They are a very uh, vocal gun control support group in the state of Texas. And they have been gracious enough to engage in a conversation about gun control behind enemy lines. And that means a lot because if you've listened to this program for a while, I have all, you know I have always encouraged a, a very productive dialogue, even if you both walk away completely disagreeing. And the fact that we have representatives from Texas Gun Sense here really means the world to me. I'm glad that they're here, even though we completely disagree on the subject and uh, the policies that should be instituted. I feel like this is going to be a a great conversation. But before we get into that, I want to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, and that is No Surrender Holsters. If you are like me and you love anything that complements your firearms or knives, then you know that nothing complements it better than a custom Kydex holster or sheath. No Surrender Holsters can do anything that you would like and make it your very own one of a kind holster. And if you check them out on Facebook at No Surrender Holsters, take a look at some of the work that they've done. and You will see the difference just in the pictures compared to other uh, manufacturers. They're all made here in the Lone Star State with uh, nationwide shipping, for, of course. And if you contact AJ and tell him that you want a No Surrender Holster, and you tell him that you heard it here on Lone Star Gun Talk, he will give you free shipping, and you cannot beat that. Check him out today on Facebook at No Surrender Holsters. I have put a link in the podcast description. Let them know that we sent you and get your free shipping, and I hope that you enjoy your No Surrender Holster. All right, guys, here it is. We have with us Ed Scruggs from Texas Gun Sense, uh, and we are going to have a... I can feel it. We're going to have a good conversation on gun control. Ed, welcome to Lone Star Gun Talk, sir.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, no problem. It's my pleasure. Uh, First, before we get into policy and things like that, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do at Texas Gun Sense, uh, what motivated you to uh, get involved with gun control advocacy and all of that?
1: Well, I'm currently the vice chairperson of our board of directors at Texas Gun Sense and uh, spokesperson. I do a lot of the media interviews um, for the group. Uh, we're a nonprofit um, based here in Texas. Um, vol- all of our volunteers are from Texas and from around the state and uh, almost all of our funding also comes from Texas. Um, I got involved in uh, these issues uh, after Sandy Hook, um, I was always concerned about it, of course. Um, uh, but as things were building after the Aurora Theater shooting, some other incidents. But then when Sandy Hook happened, uh, just hit me really hard. I I could only compare it to um, the feeling I had after 9/11. In some ways, I had a daughter who was that same age, who was in the hospital that morning having surgery. And uh, so a lot of things combined uh, just to really hit me like a ton of bricks. And um, I, um, in the days following that, just met folks online from around town here in Austin that I did not know, but we all had similar feelings. And um, we got together and started working on these issues. Uh, Texas Incense was actually started a few years before that um, during the debate over Campus carry. Um, and, uh, had grown during that time, but following Sandy Hook, kind of the scope broadened out and, um, became an official nonprofit, uh, organization and, um, just grew from there.
0: Right on. So you're, you're very passionate about this, obviously. And, you know, from a gun control or even a gun rights perspective, I think it's important that... Uh, for most people, anyway, we both have the same end game. We both want to make sure that tragedies don't happen. We just have a very different means of going about that end. And, you know, I've said a thousand times, it is okay to disagree, and we can disagree agreeably. You know, you and Mm -hmm. I can, uh, we can be completely polar opposite. I can believe that everything that you uh, say is... Uh, contrary to our founding principles and that's okay we can disagree agreeably so let's talk policy here if you could enact any legislation that you wanted just by waving a magic wand your uh your philosophy would be put into place what would gun laws in the united states look like
1: Well, obviously very different than they are right now. I think our organization um, works on many fronts, but I think the overarching um, policy that we think uh, would be a top priority would be um, universal background checks, if not fully universal, mostly universal, um, with a good, strong background check system. Uh, fixing many of the errors that we've seen recently and applying um, to private sales, uh, most internet sales and so forth and so on. Um, That would be a top priority. And and also in areas that, you know, when you talk about the areas of mental health or family safety, uh, we've seen a recent move towards what some people call a gun violence restraining order Uh, we call a lethal violence restraining order, uh, where when someone such as the shooter in Florida is exhibiting um, very odd and disturbing behavior, violence towards parents and other individuals, uh, that police or family can make a request of a judge that we have a restraining order uh, to remove those guns um, until the uh, person is examined and judged to be competent to get them back. Um, We think that would go a long way. Um, in preventing domestic violence, uh, gun related deaths, and abuse. Um, other than that, a variety of different things. Um, we, we, of course, oppose um, concealed carry reciprocity, which is currently being proposed um, across the states. Um, we would also like to see increased funding for um, firearm safety and education especially gun storage in the home. Uh, the accidental deaths of children in the home is a, is a big problem. Um, I, you know, on my social media feeds, every time one happens, I see it come across and it happens daily and uh, it's a terrible tragedy and completely preventable. But I think that's, the, that's a good place to start.
0: Okay. So you said a lot and uh, let's kind of take sure. this uh, kind of step by step. Although I, I, I might have to go back and, and listen because i might I might miss something, but you, you started with universal background checks, and uh-huh. that's something that gets thrown around a lot. Um, so, uh, we don't support background checks at all, even the current system, and I know that probably drives you crazy. Uh, yeah. But what would how would your version of background checks differ from the current NICS background check system that we already have?
1: Well, I think that the legislation that's currently proposed to fix next to fix some of those holes in the system, needs to go through. Um, you know, Right now, a big weakness in the system is that governmental entities, they don't have the incentive to report. States, it's not mandatory that re- they report, and different states have different systems. So you have actually Texas, which does a fairly good job of reporting mental health records um, and other records to the system as opposed to a state like Oklahoma where a few years ago they did a study and over the period of a few years they only had three people reported to the system for the entire state because they left that up to the counties to come up with to be responsible for that. They didn't have to report to a central database in the state and so that it's just uneven and it misses a lot of people we can do a lot to change that <clears throat> for one thing and and pick up more of those folks I think um, being able to contact someone on the internet or on Craigslist and go to you know the Costco parking lot somewhere and being able to buy a weapon uh, that that's just not safe and I think most people um, believe that to be the case. I mean, there's just no background check involved there. We have no idea who's selling, who's buying, etc. And and obviously, that's a big gaping hole in the system. We need to change that. Um, you, you know, in the, the area of family transfer from a son to, you know, from a father to a son or a grandfather to a grandson, there's some room there where, you know, we can talk family heirlooms and some things like that. But I just think right now it's it's so easy to get around um, the background check system that it doesn't work as near as effectively as it should.
0: Okay, you mentioned, uh, for example, accidents. You said accidents are a huge issue, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm looking at the CDC statistics on this from 2015 and. This is causes of death, and I'm well aware that there are accidental discharges where injuries occur. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as far as deaths are concerned from accidental discharge of firearms in 2014, there were 489 total. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I don't really see that as a major issue.
1: Well, I think it's, I think one thing that you can argue though, is that everyone, of those deaths is preventable. And that's, you know, we have regulations for um, baby bassinets and strollers because maybe two child, two children, three children a year might accidentally be caught in them and suffocate. And so it is a significant issue in the sense of, you know, as I mentioned, now that people are really following this and keeping track, when it happens, it makes local news it does get carried on social media etc and it's always the same story it is a horrible tragic event that involves usually a young child maybe a sibling sometimes a parent and someone left their weapons out they were cleaning them and walked away or they just weren't very careful with them or the young child they find a way to find them in the house and you know the one thing that I've learned from working in this field over time is the, um, the ripple effect of these gun violence deaths throughout a family, throughout the neighborhood where they occur. Um, they're tremendously traumatizing to everyone. And um, so 400 deaths, that's, that's an awful lot of trauma out there and a lot of people that are affected that'll never be the same because of it. And the fact that they are all preventable pretty much all preventable. I just don't understand why, for example, there is some opposition to increasing funding uh, for education on how to store weapons properly. Um, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. That's the one thing at the Texas legislature that we lobbied heavily for last session was for the Department of Public Safety to designate a small portion of the license-to-carry fee uh, towards uh, a public relations campaign and education program. Uh, and uh, there was resistance there, but there was also a lot of bipartisan support, but everyone was afraid to touch the issue. They didn't want it to get out of committee, and they didn't want to touch it. Where to me, that is something that's just so basic that there's a lot of agreement on that, hey, education isn't going to harm anyone. Education isn't going to take anyone's rights away, and it might save a few lives. So that was one of the more disappointing things last session. Uh, We do believe, obviously, there's a lot of people that need the education because these incidents are still happening.
0: Well, here's the thing on that. Um, Yes, any untimely death— is tragic. And I'm not trying to downplay that those 480, uh, whatever the number was, uh, my my phone's off now. Uh, But whatever that number was, I'm not trying to downplay that as, you know, it's just a number. But you have to, I feel very strongly that you have to look at this from an overall standpoint. You're talking 400 and change in a nation of 325 million. You, I don't believe that there is any law, regulation, rule, uh, et cetera, that can be implemented to make that zero consistently every single year, I don't think that you can make that zero for homicides or uh, you know uh, armed robbery or anything like that. And because you can't make it zero, and I will uh, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later, but I don't think crime in general in this country is a substantial issue. Yeah, it's, it's tragic whenever people get uh, murdered, raped, uh, their property is stolen from them. It's, it's awful, and I don't wish that upon anybody. But I think that it's kind of also tragic to strip away people's rights, good, honest people's rights, over a very minor issue. And I say that from a purely statistical standpoint. So you said education. You, you, you mm-hmm. talked a lot about education. Here's the problem that I have with mandated education. Government mandate, anytime the government runs anything, they never run it effectively. Uh, have you ever taken the LTC course? Uh,
1: no, I have not.
0: Okay. The LTC course is basically just a quick synopsis of what the laws are, uh, and they touch on it very uh, very lightly. Whenever I got my LTC, it was a 10-hour requirement. Now it's down to four, I think. And even that, it I felt like it was a 10-hour waste of my day. Uh, because it's, it's not government education, even those done by private individuals, because the government dictates the curriculum, it's not an effective uh, form of education. I agree that education is important, but I believe that Uh, private industry should have the solution to that. You know, you go to any gun range or gun shop, they will either provide you with education or uh, recommend somebody who is willing to educate you. And, And that goes for anybody, for anything. There are ranges that have basic maintenance classes all the way to full tactical classes if they have the facility for it. And education's out there. I just don't think that the state should be the one to run it or mandated
1: because well in and, and, and i think you know i think one of the issues here is is that we're not proposing necessarily that you have to take a mandated course or anything of that i think that the thought process would be more along the lines of for example how you may see dps run a billboard on the side of the highway click it or ticket you know you're going to get a ticket if you don't wear a seat belt that kind of thing just as a reminder to people um to pay attention to what they're doing. And you're right, it's not going to completely eliminate all of these accidental deaths. That's impossible. But I think there are more people, I don't have exact statistics on this, but I would bet my bottom dollar that more people are prosecuted each year for leaving their child in a locked car while they go in the store. Um, And and you know we do hear about those deaths as well. But they're almost always charged in some way when a death occurs, and that's because it's just reckless endangerment, basically, um, uh, an endangerment uh, of a child.
0: Right. I'm, and, I'm sorry to interrupt, Ed. You uh, have my agreement on that. I do agree that any time an adult is negligent and it results in the death of a child because a child cannot legally, from a legal standpoint, make decisions for itself. So yes. if if a parent— is reckless and leaves their loaded firearm out and uh, a child finds it and pulls the trigger and shoots somebody, shoots themselves, or just hits drywall. Yeah, I think that there should be legal penalties for that. Uh, And I don't think that anybody, and keep in mind, I'm a Second Amendment purist, uh, uh, you know, in the, I'm, Far more hardcore than the NRA. I've blasted the NRA on this program several times because (laughs) I think that uh, they're spineless, but that's neither here nor there. I think that, I don't think anybody would disagree that if a parent is uh, stupid enough to leave their loaded firearm out and their child finds it and kills somebody or or does something with it, that they should not face charges. The parent should not face charges. They should. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I just don't want to see any sort of mandates that the only way it's really enforceable is to have law enforcement go around knocking on doors.
1: Oh, you know, and I think you have some agreement uh, from from me there as well. I don't, I, I think uh, that's when you get so intrusionary, that's, that's just one, it's, it, from that standpoint, it's impossible uh, to enforce. But I'm glad that, you know, you do say that there is a responsibility there on behalf of the parent, and 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 I can tell you cases that um, we have studied, and and you know someone is leaving a gun out on the nightstand next to their bed because they they need they feel they need it to be accessible in order to defend themselves at night. Um, they wake up in the middle of the night, et cetera, They leave it there, and a child comes in and gets it, things of that nature. Um, You know, that is negligent. It's district attorneys in many states, not just Texas, but they're very reluctant to file charges or enforce the law in those cases because they feel, well, there's, it's such a tragedy, you know, it's the the parents have already suffered so much, etc. So they often don't charge them. And, and, um, You know, I I, certainly it is a tragedy and they have suffered. Uh, But, you know, it's that's one way I think when these events happen that people will learn, hey, there is a consequence if I am negligent. Um, And and I I don't know. There's there's just a tendency sometimes for uh, sometimes for law enforcement and district attorneys to kind of just get past it and and not go there with the charge. And um, I personally would like to see that changing. But, you know, in terms of laws to prevent it, it's very difficult to do. Uh, you may, um, there may be some things that could be done to encourage district attorneys to enforce the statute, things of that nature, Right. right because right, right well, now they're not.
0: Also, keep in mind that every situation is different. And, you know, I know that the way that laws are typically written, they want to, lay it out generally so that way anything that kind of falls under that umbrella can get prosecuted. Uh, One of the things that I I don't favor for anything are like mandatory minimum sentences because every case is different. And it doesn't matter if it's a uh, first degree homicide. It doesn't matter if it's uh, you you name the charge. Every case is different. So I'm not one who supports things like mandatory minimums. And even if a district attorney were to take a look at this, and, uh, and decide not to prosecute, I think that should be up to him. Uh, but I, I, I think that we're kind of getting on, off into the weeds into this, sure. uh, this line of dialogue. So let's, let's kind of back up a, a bit, and let's, let's talk about crime, the way crime is in the current state. You obviously are very passionate about uh, gun control, because of what you've seen on the news and everything that you've heard about and seen on social media. Because if you look at it, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at it, you, see, you seem to think that this sort of thing happens all the time. And if it were up to the, the media narrative, and not to sound all tinfoil hatty, I'm, I'm not, but they do have an agenda and they push that agenda, and that's all media outlets. And you would think, the average person would think that this sort of thing is a regular occurrence that affects so many Americans every year. And from a purely statistical standpoint, it's not. Um, you know, I, you can check these numbers uh, if you'd like. I can provide you with the links if you want. But, uh, you know, I was looking at the 2016 FBI Uniform Crime Report. I'm a big numbers guy. I don't know if you could tell. Uh, Numbers mean a lot to me, and as somebody who has experienced the untimely death of somebody uh, and somebody at the barrel of a gun, I realize that I can't let my emotions dictate what good public policy would be because I maintain the fact that if you're emotionally thinking about something you can't necessarily be logical about it because your emotions are driving it. So I try and be as unemotional whenever it comes to this discussion as possible just because I think that if you're going to have a discussion on public policy, it should be completely rooted in logic without any sort of emotion attachment. So looking at the 2016 reports, the population of the U.S. was just shy of 325 million, okay? And taking all of the violent crimes that were committed and reported, which I am well aware that there are some that do not get reported, but all of them that do get reported, in 2016 there were 1.2 million uh, violent crimes, 368,000 of which were committed with a firearm. And if you do the math, that's 0.36% of Americans were affected by a violent crime, and 0.11% of Americans were affected by violent crime with a firearm. This is homicide, rape, uh, aggravated assault, armed robbery, you name it. I don't see 0.3% as anything substantial. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, statistically, in the broad view, you're right. I mean, it's it, tra- um, crime is lower. It's lower than I remember as a child growing up in the 70s and the 80s, for sure, in the early 90s. Um, And sometimes people are either too young or they don't remember how how significant crime was then. Uh, Crime is down. Um, But I think the the estimates of gun-related deaths per year range sometimes between 30,000, 33,000. About two-thirds of those are suicides. And then um, the rest would be homicides. Um, the, again, I talked about the ripple effect of gun violence, what that does when, when, when someone is a victim of gun violence, even if they don't die, but they're just injured, uh, the, the trauma of that is very significant. That extends outward amongst their social circle, people they know, et cetera. And the same thing goes with suicide. Um, and, um, the, when you talk about for if you're going to talk about mass shootings which is that's what people tend to focus on because it's just so explosive and so out there it just has an impact on people's psyche that is an intangible effect it scares people in the way that terrorism scares people and so people feel uneasy when they're out in public now, when they go to a movie theater, when they go to pick up their kids at school or drop them off, when they go to the supermarket and things of this nature. And it's just in part of this, I agree, the media has definitely played a role in hyping that I don't want to say hyping it up, but it's just the news cycle focuses on these events so much that you really can't escape that now. Uh, And people are on edge and people are scared. I think one of the questions that I have, and you might be able to answer for me, is we know that crime is lower and the, your chances of being involved in a violent incident are low, but why are gun sales so high? I One of the things that we often deal with in Texas when we're working on legislation is people will say, well, I'm a purist and I don't want anything to restrict my right to defend myself. I must defend myself whenever I'm out with my family somewhere, et cetera. But then again, statistically, the chances of people being involved in a crime are so low. What do you think is behind the increase in gun sales and the view of this heightened need to protect oneself?
0: I firmly believe that the reason that gun sales just go up and up and up every single year are because of the political threat that – that these type of weapons are going to be banned. And I, I think that's uh, that shows how much people care about their natural right to bear arms. And you know i I also firmly feel that our rights have been infringed upon, and I called it a natural right for a reason. I, I that is a tenet of mine deep in my soul, that our right to bear arms, it doesn't come from government. It is a natural right. Uh, For me specifically, I believe that that right comes from God. Uh, And the threat that our rights are going to be diminished more are why uh, gun sales are going up. And I believe that they've been diminished and infringed on since 1934 with the passage of the National Firearms Act. And every, uh, every decade or so, we get another infringement. And so it's about that time, if you look at history with the passage of another gun control bill at the federal level and people are you know they're tired of seeing their rights chipped away and that's why you see those gun sales what do you think about that
1: well i, I think i think you're right in the sense of the that there are certainly many people who believe that and they are buying multiple we- multiple weapons based on that premise um You mentioned uh, the Firearms Act of 1934, which banned Tommy guns and put regulations on several things. Um, You know, that was done, of course, in the midst of gang warfare and gangsters and in the midst of the Prohibition Wars and so forth and so on, that there was a need. Okay, we need to put a cap on some of these things Mm -hmm. Um, and and. I I think the average person would have a very hard time believing that we need Tommy guns on the street, that that's really something they would view that as an offensive weapon and not a defensive weapon. I think that's one of the issues that you have with assault style weapons today is that the AR-15, for example, is viewed as an offensive weapon and not a defensive weapon, and so forth and so on. And so the average person who may not shoot or may not own weapons or may just have very limited experience, they just have a hard time with kind of an unlimited um, marketplace for weapons. They just don't understand it because they obviously don't feel threatened enough. Maybe they have a handgun in their home, but they don't need to feel that that they need to have 10 of them in their home or that they need to have some of these um, more powerful weapons in their home. Um, They would probably ask, okay, well, isn't there a line? How much is too much? And and what do you say to that? If someone says, is there no limit? I mean, would you, do you think there should be absolutely no restrictions on the types of weapons that, that you should be able to carry?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I think that any law regulation, uh, piece of legislation that is on the federal books regarding firearms, I, be, I feel is an infringement. And, you know, I want to go back real quick, and then we can go back to, to that sure. answer. Uh, you said that people view the AR platform as an offensive weapon. And I think that you're right. I think that the average person, the aver- especially the average non-gun owner, Mm-hmm. We'll view that as an offensive weapon. And this is where your uh, talking point on education comes in because it's not. Um, and I'm I'm also not for the 1986 ban on full auto weapons that Reagan signed. I think that was a gross infringement. And, and uh, a lot of people will think that I'm nuts, especially whenever you look at the incident in Las Vegas where the guy uses a bump stock— mm-hmm. And he fires into a concert crowd. Here's the thing, though: even the Army Field Manual. I'm a Navy veteran, and I have a lot mm-hmm. of uh, experience in these types of weapons. I was an armor, and I um, I was a, a firearms instructor, a small arms instructor. There, fully automatic fire is not an effective method of weapons employment. It's just not. I will. I I will. I am steadfast in my belief that had uh, the guy in Vegas, and I'm not one that likes to repeat their names because I think that kind of perpetuates the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I I firmly believe that had he just stuck with a semi-automatic form of fire, not a bump, I know it's not really fully automatic, but had he not used a bump stock, I think that the total number of shot would have been lower, but I think the total number killed would have been higher. And the reason is that whenever you're shooting in a fully automatic uh, style of fire, you, your accuracy is completely diminished. In the military, full auto is only used in a defensive posture. And the only reason that you need to use it, even using a belt-fed uh, uh, machine gun, is you are trying to keep your enemy's head down while your teammates go around their flank or something of that nature or in our case in the Navy with the uh, M2HB 50-cal machine gun and other crew-served weapons. The reason you do that is because it is very hard to shoot a a small boat attack with anything other than accuracy by volume is what we call it because Uh you are dumping so much ammo in the hopes of hitting because you are not accurate in that form of fire. And in a crowd, yeah, you will have a lot more hit, but the vast majority of them will not be nearly as fatal as if you were to use a semi-automatic function. And, you know, I I might be making the case for you for a ban on semi-automatics, which I don't believe in either, but I I feel that it's very important that people realize that uh, the full auto ban of 1986 and bump stocks if you want, if, if I say you generally, if somebody wanted to inflict chaos upon a group of people, that's not the best method to do it. It's just not, and that's based mm-hmm. off of my training as a veteran. So, um, and,
1: and and just in in taking that into account, you, you mentioned that you didn't favor the ban on full auto, and so you don't think that that bump stocks and so forth should be outlawed, et cetera it's making making the case that it is more of a defensive use than an offensive use yes but the average person would say well sure that's a defensive use if you're being invaded by an army or you have ISIS coming down the street with you know 10 guys or something like that whereas most people i think when when they're thinking of self defense in the home they are probably thinking a shotgun or a handgun for an intruder Um, And they would absolutely –
0: I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead.
1: But that's – they don't understand why the average person would think that they need that kind of firepower on that level as a defensive alternative.
0: Okay. Um, Now I could go with the generalized gun rights talking point and say it's not about needs. It's not the bill of needs. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to approach this from a practical perspective because there is actually a need out there. Uh, I promise that if I owned a business in Baltimore or in Ferguson, Missouri, when the riots were going on, I would want a couple of hundred round drum magazines and a fully automatic M4 to defend that because people were rioting in the streets and destroying businesses, which is destroying livelihoods. And whenever there is a mob like that, it's rare. Absolutely, it's rare. Violent crime in general is incredibly rare in this country. But I don't want to be a victim, and I don't want anybody else to be a victim. So is there a situation, a realistic situation, where somebody would have the need for 100-round uh, drum magazines or a belt-fed machine gun? Absolutely. And all you got to do is look at the, at the recent riots, and you could even look at the L.A. riots.
1: What would you say, to Now, this is an idea that's also been tossed around. I mean, people talk about an assault assault weapons ban or semi-automatic rifle ban, etc. And our organization is not calling for that. But we have asked the question about, well, what about just a little tighter regulation on those weapons, a higher class of license or um, a little more training, etc.? So, When let's say you have someone such as a business owner or someone with an interest such as that, that um, they would have the right to have something like that, Um, but they would just have to have a little more education. They would have to have a license to carry it, et cetera, et cetera. What would you think about that?
0: Well, the problem that I have with that is my core belief that uh, the right to bear arms, and that is a general uh, use of the word arms is that it is a God-given or natural right, depending upon your belief systems. Because I believe that this right doesn't come from government. It comes from beyond government. I think that the government doesn't have the authority to impose such regulations since they weren't the ones to grant it to begin with. If you start putting regulations on it, which we've been doing since 1934 – And in some cases, even before that, whenever you put regulations on it, that means that it's no longer a natural right. It means it's a government granted privilege. And I don't think that natural rights should be treated that way.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and and that's, and and that is a belief that's out there. Certainly, I, you know, and this is just my own personal questions to, to folks, though, is if. Uh, if the right to bear arms is a natural right and God given, then the whole constitution would be as well. And then you could make the argument then, well, why do we have any laws? Why do we have a speed limit? Why do we um, require seatbelts? That type of thing. I mean, we have restrictions in our lives that are elected representatives of the government. We've come together and we've agreed on those things. We don't like the laws. We can elect other people to change them, etc. Why do you believe that guns are different, though? I don't. I don't.
0: To- I don't believe that guns are different. Um, I'm, <coughs> this might actually shock some of my listeners, uh, and or it might not. I'm far more of a libertarian than anything else. Uh, I believe that we have a lot of natural rights that are being infringed on. Uh, now, you've brought up things like Uh, Why have any laws? So my philosophy whenever it comes to criminal law is that nothing should be illegal if unless the act in and of itself directly infringes upon the rights of another human being. So homicide, for instance. You can't just go up and shoot somebody in the face because you feel like it because they have the right to live and you took that away from them. So you need to establish a punishment for that. Whenever it comes to a lot of these laws that are on the books, like in Texas, it's a felony to carry a handgun or any weapon into a bar. Mm-hmm. It's it's this... Uh, did you ever see the movie Minority Report? Oh, yes. Okay. In my mind, it's a lot like that. It's, it's kind of this uh, proactive approach to prevent crime. So... In order to do that, because we don't want people mixing alcohol and, and and firearms, and I'm an adamant believer in that. I just don't think it should be a legal mandate, but that's a whole other discussion. Because we don't want people to mix alcohol and firearms, we're just going to make it illegal for them to go into a bar. Well, I'm not a drinker. I, I drink maybe you know two or three beers a month at most, and uh, I do go into bars quite a bit not because I'm drinking, but maybe I enjoy the food there. Uh, maybe I'm out with my wife and she's meeting some friends or, or what have you. There are plenty of examples, and I'm not the only one, where you know I feel like my rights are being infringed upon by a state-mandated infringement that says you shall not carry into a bar. It's a preemptive, proactive approach to try and tackle a problem that is not an issue. Again, going back to the purely statistical data, None of this is an issue. It's it's infringement on our rights to correct a non-existent problem.
1: Now, for example, you have – this brings to mind to my – my. remember when I was a kid, and uh, drunk driving was a lot more accepted than it is today. And I remember actually an in, in incident where there were times my dad would pick me up from school, and he would have a beer in the car. And he would drink that beer on the way home. And one time he made a bad U-turn and we got in an accident. Police stopped us. And, you know, you're not drunk. It's okay. They let him let him go, basically. Well, deaths and highway deaths per capita were much higher then. Um, until we started um, toughing up laws on drunk driving, lowering, um, uh, lowering the standard to um, – to one to 0.10, then 0.08, and so forth and so on. And we've seen with also technology and seatbelt laws and airbags, over time, traffic fatalities per capita have dropped significantly. So you can argue that hundreds of thousands of lives may have been saved in that case, but people can still drive cars and they can still do their things. And if people want to drive drunk, they can, but they know that there is definitely a penalty if they do and it in it, it, it and it does prohibit some people from doing that and them think twice what why can't we have that same approach with guns
0: as far as from an intoxication standpoint or, or
1: well no in terms of just in terms of the law being a deterrent um that we have some restrictions some regulation on firearms um oh, okay. you know I, I making I, them safer etc Okay, yeah. so I, I think
0: i understand here uh the reason that you you don't have additional regulations like that is, well, because they're not specific actions. You know, driving while intoxicated is an action. You know, you have to do something. You have to start the car, put it in drive, and start driving. Now, I I know that there are some instances out there where somebody's sleeping in their driver's seat in the parking lot will get a DUI, and I don't agree with that. I think that's asinine. Uh, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you know, you get pulled over, I think there should be a legal limit because there is an inherent danger to that. Um, and again, I, I don't want to get too delve, uh, too far off into the weeds as far as drunk driving is concerned, but regulations on firearms, the, the, what it really boils down to is somebody possessing a firearm of any kind, be it. A uh, select fire M4 with an M203 grenade launcher attachment is not an inherent danger because you don't know that person's intent. It could be used for good. It could be used for bad. Negligence should be prosecuted, and as well as malicious acts should be prosecuted on a on a different level. But somebody just having it—that's not—that's not a—that's uh, not, not an act that in any way infringes upon the the rights of others
1: I see what you're getting that in terms of the matter of intent and and so forth that I think what people would tend to come back with is well, should people be able to possess nitro or should they be able to have um, make toxic chemicals in their house even though they haven't done anything wrong with it? The chances of a terrible tragedy occurring if something does go wrong is so high that uh, maybe we should have some some safety in place, that type of thing. And I, I think that's what that's what we're getting at on our side. I, I think this this the the belief out there, or that you often hear that that. Folks on our side of things want to ban all guns or take guns from people and things like that. That's just that's just not true. I think it's just reasonable regulation, improving the safety, uh, things of that nature. Uh, it, it, that that is more in line with I think what people want. Um, right. And 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 that's that's where we're going here. But again, you know, there are purists on both sides of this, but I don't think. Uh, I don't think most of the people that I know are, are purists and fall into that category.
0: Right. No, I I believe I, – I know that my mindset is not uh, particularly popular. It's not shared by the majority of Americans. I wish it were, um, but really what it boils down to you, – you mentioned somebody creating uh, mustard gas or something like that, which is mm-hmm. really easy to do. All it takes is you know a quick internet search, and you'll see that uh, mixing bleach and ammonia will do it. You know it's mm-hmm. it's really easy, but you still don't see a lot of people doing it. And you could you could do it without law enforcement having any sort of uh, any sort of idea that that's happening. And you can also see that because somebody could get away with possessing that, they don't because it's not there's not a real want for it and Mm -hmm. really the thing is and again I don't think that the mere possession of anything should constitute a crime or even a civil penalty I think possession is you know unless you're in possession of stolen property that's a different story Uh, so you know you talk about you want sensible regulations and the thing is that the average Gun rights supporter, not me uh, particularly, Uh, but the average person believes that, uh, well, I am included in this group. When I say not me, I'm not talking about my specific mindset, but the average gun owner mentality is that, you know, it starts this way. You know, gun mm-hmm. control and gun confiscation never happens overnight, and I I do believe that the majority of people who support gun control honestly believe the way that you just said that you just want sensible gun regulations uh, in your mind in order to deter or prevent crime. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you can see throughout history and that started in 1934 with the F- National Firearms Act then 1938 with the Federal Firearms Act, 1968 with the Gun Control Act, 1986 with FOPA, 1988 with the Undetectable Firearms Act, 1990 with the Gun-Free School Zones Act. It just keeps going on and on and on, and I promise that everybody that was lobbying for that never said, oh, yeah, we want to do gun confiscation. But you've... I don't mean you specifically. You see that these... That these groups have been chipping away at our rights little by little over the decades and you know the, the 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 right to defend yourself is an inherent right and the means by which you do that should only be limited to what your most significant threat could ever possess and because our most significant threat is uh, from a militia member standpoint, would be the the government. It could turn that way, or if you want to get all red donny, you know, an invading force. <laughs> uh, but because that threat could be out there, you should be able to possess any means to defend against that type of threat. And you know, I I, I trust you that you say that you only want sensible regulations. But mm-hmm. really, the thing is. Every place that is uh, that is now gun-free, like Australia and uh, the U.K., uh, they started off that way with sensible regulations, and now it's illegal to possess a firearm in the U.K. And you see stabbings happening constantly. Uh, I read a report recently that said um, that... Uh, hang on, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, yeah, so you have the homicide rate or I'm sorry, violent crime rate in the UK is 2,000 crimes per 100,000. That's a 2%. Uh, That's 2% of the population has to deal with violent crimes, whereas on our end, we have 0.3%, and 0.1 of which are committed with firearms. Really what it boils down to, for me, is that in a situation like Florida, I would much rather have somebody... Who's just walking down the street minding their own business with a select fire M4 on their back? Notice that and take action. Then wait seven to twelve minutes to have police arrive, and then, in the case of Florida, do nothing.
1: Well, I think it's you know it's just a matter of what we want um, our life and our society to be. I mean, what is if your if I'm hearing you correctly? I mean. You know, we don't have the mass shooting problems in other nations, other civilized advanced nations around the world. Now, you have incidents that will happen, but nothing on the scale mass shooting-wise like you have in the United States. Um, I personally know people from England, from Australia, um, from Europe, who they have a very hard time understanding fascination with firearms in the United States, the the shootings that they do see and hear about, it's just unfathomable. They just almost can't believe it. And, and they don't, they wouldn't trade, you know, they wouldn't trade it. Um, they, they just can't even imagine the possibility of wanting to carry a gun around. And so there's something, there's something about America, there's something about this society that um involves um, this having having this ability to inflict violence or in, in defense of oneself that doesn't seem to exist in other countries. And that's you know possibly, you know, maybe that's something we need to get at and crack eventually is if you you know you talk about intent or motivations. Why do we need to resolve disputes violently? Um, I would argue that there seems to be a prevalence for that in our society. And, and I don't know why that is. Um, you know, and it involves, you know, you have uh, road rage and here in Austin, I know in the last probably four months, we've had three fatal violent incidents of road rage that just started over someone cutting someone off. They get mad. Someone draws a gun and shoots, or maybe they both draw a gun and shoot. And that doesn't happen in England and it's not happening in Australia. And, 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 Why is that? I guess that's the million-dollar question that uh, maybe sociologists will be able to answer decades from now. I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, I mean obviously with the general public not being able to possess firearms, obviously your gun-related violence is going to decrease rather substantially. There are still incidents that happen with firearms, uh, but not as much. But you also see an increase of other methods, and really what – I mean – if you look at it, evil's going to find a way to do what it wants. No matter what laws are in, in place to try and prevent that, to try and be proactive, to, to stop it from happening, evil's going to find a way. I mean, you see it, I mean, look, take a look at, uh, uh, take a look in prisons. You know, they are uh, completely disarmed. It is the uh, uh, epitome of a police state. You know, they're not allowed to possess anything that could be used as a weapon, yet you see them manufacture shanks all the time. You see uh, drunk, drug running happening in prisons. You see violence happening in prisons. And I know that this is not a, a good demographic to really point out, but the point that I'm trying to make is that in a, in a completely controlled environment like a prison, violence and evil still happens because evil will always find a way. And that's, that's really the point that I'm trying to make.
1: Sure, and, and, I, and I do agree that um, evil intent – there are truly evil people in the world, and there are also people with um, severe mental illness and so forth and so on, and they'll find a way to do something. I think what the average person worries so much about is that the evil person with the intent of causing mass casualties – um, and inflicting them in a very short amount of time, it appears very easy for them to do that with the availability of some of the firepower that's out there. Um, it, you know, you could make the argument that if it was more difficult, you know it it wouldn't happen quite as often. You wouldn't have I don't think people would be building um truck bombs quite as often and so forth and so on. But that gets to how the gun violence problem has torn at the fabric of our society, where people, either rightly or wrongly, just don't feel safe in the public square or they don't – they feel like their freedom of movement is being um, restricted because they have to worry about, oh, is a guy going to walk in the theater now? Am I going to be trapped? Um, you know, these types of things. And I I remember as a kid in, you know, the 70s and the 80s even, this is just something that never entered my mind, and I don't think it entered the mind of most people. But now it's constantly on your mind wherever you go. And as you say, statistics don't necessarily bear that out, that it's a huge threat. But that is a restriction on our freedom because you're not – allowed to be truly free because you're always having to think about potential for violence. And so that's that's part of the impact, I think, that people want to be able to feel a little free from this. And, and it, it appears to many people as if guns are everywhere, so you can't escape it.
0: To that, I would probably, I, w- I would respond by saying this, the mere presence of a gun, should not make anybody uncomfortable because the second that something does happen the first thing they do is they call the police who bring guns and you know I I, I, I can't understand why people get uncomfortable at the sight of a firearm on somebody in civilian clothes uh, because quite frankly if it's in a holster or it's slung around their back or whatever it's not a threat It's just an inanimate object. I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the perpetuation by the media. And you know what? You are right about one thing. You know, I carry constantly. I carry every day. And the reason that I carry is because I don't want to become a statistic. I would much rather uh, be the survivor who was able to uh, at minimum save my own life and if I was if I had the opportunity to save others, I would definitely take do that. Not because I want, you know, glory or to be a hero or anything, but because it's I believe it's it's our human uh, duty to protect everybody else from any sort of violence like that. And I think again, going back to education, if people were to understand that firearms in and of themselves are not evil and that anybody can safely operate one with really minimal uh, instruction. It it doesn't take much to learn how to disassemble a firearm and it doesn't take much to learn how to uh, properly employ one. I think that the world would be a much safer and much freer place because should something happen... You're not waiting 7 to 12 minutes for law enforcement to arrive. You're waiting 2 to 3 seconds to pull that weapon out of your holster and return fire and at least stop the the attacker from killing other people. Maybe you can keep his head down uh, until law enforcement can show up or maybe you can take him out right there and neutralize the threat and save a lot of lives in the process. To me, all of these other additional regulations and even the current regulations that we have on the books, all they do is deter people like me who are the vast majority of people in this country. Uh, Well, that's not entirely accurate. The vast majority of people who uh, own guns. Uh, You know, and that includes, includes the criminal element. You want a deterrent what better a deterrent than to have a room full of armed citizens capable of returning fire with equal or even greater firepower than the criminal possesses?
1: But that sounds as if, though, that that you would be advocating more guns equal more safety. And is that what, if more people were armed, if we had more people carrying guns on the street, your argument would then be that we would be safer.
0: I I firmly believe that. I I do. And, you know, no matter what laws you have in place, accidents will happen as they currently do. Uh, But overall, I think you will see a uh, much more, uh, a much less loss of life, from homicides, I think that you will see a crime rate that will decrease because, if you think about it, nobody is going to want to. Uh, nobody's going to want to inflict violence on somebody that they know has the capability to fight back, and fight back in an adequate and effective manner.
1: So, let's say if you're openly caring, which there's a difference between open and concealed caring. If you're openly carrying in in an environment where someone has the intent to do harm, wouldn't you think you would be their first target?
0: Uh, you know, I have heard that um, I've heard that talking point a lot. I'm somebody that open carries most of the time. There are times where I conceal, um, and to be honest, you could make a, a case for both. It really is a um, it's a preference. And do I think that you'll be the target? It depends on who the assailant is. It depends on what their mindset is. In some cases, yes. In other cases, no. I would argue that in most cases, if they saw that, they would turn around and at minimum wait for you to leave. Uh, and to be completely honest, what's, what's funny is I have open carried into places and they never saw the fact that there was a 1911, which if you're not familiar, is a rather sizable handgun on my hip. And it's in plain view for everybody to see without any sort of concealment going on. People just haven't noticed. Now, from a criminal standpoint, they'll probably be looking for something like that. But you have law enforcement that open carries. They're required by law to open carry. Um, you have uh, you know, our military, we open carry. And the reason is, uh, one, I've, I feel, as a personal preference, it's more comfortable and I have more control over my weapons employment. I can do it faster and more effective. Uh, but I think that people should have the choice to whether or not they want to carry concealed or want to, if they want to carry openly.
1: But then, but you also, if I'm reading it correctly, you are opposed to mandatory training and licensing requirements, which is, I think it's four hours, like you mentioned. That's not that great of an imposition on your time and And to have the license um, what wh- why do you not favor that? Because that would just seem to be that's the minimum that we could do to show that, hey, I know what I'm doing, I've got a license for this, they did a background check, et cetera, And so I'm carrying this around.
0: Well, for a couple of reasons. Like I said, I believe that anytime you have a license or uh, a regulation on a natural right, it strips it of its natural right uh, status and makes it a government given privilege. Uh, from another standpoint, uh, you know there are times where uh, where somebody might need protection. Now, you know maybe they are under a specific threat. Maybe they are a, a newly divorced twenty uh, year old woman. Uh, who got into a very bad marriage early off in, in life and now they're going through a divorce. and she fears for her life, well, if you if she doesn't have her LTC, then she is limited to her protection in her house and in her car. She's not limited she's not able to protect herself anywhere else. And uh, you know I know that we could kind of what if the situation to death? Uh, but it, it really boils down to, one, it doesn't take that much to, to learn how to operate a firearm. Uh, two, there are already courses out there in the private sector. Uh, three, anybody who goes to purchase a firearm, if they don't already know how to use it, chances are the vast majority of them, the first thing that they're going to do is ask questions from either their gun-owning friends or seek out one of those courses. I think the mindset is already there for the vast majority of people who carry that uh, – or who want to carry or even just want to own a gun, that they want to know how they're how to employ it properly. I think that that's already there, and I don't think that you have to mandate it by government.
1: And so you, you would then – you don't favor background checks uh,
0: No, I, I don't. I, I said that earlier, and I know that a lot of people – even some of uh, some of our members at Lone Star Gun Rights will probably think I'm nuts. Uh, and here's the thing: again, they're natural rights. It to me it says, uh, you know, this is a right granted from beyond government. And if somebody has paid their debts to society, and it, for no matter what crime, if they've paid their debts to society and they're being released back into uh, the public, you are entrusting them or to live their life as a model citizen or as a reformed citizen. And if you're going to do that, then they should have all of their rights restored because their rights, they're not privileges contingent upon good behavior. You know, the laws that prevent uh, convicted fel- violent felons from possessing a firearm don't do anything or if they do do something, it's a negligible amount uh, because repeat offenders repeat the crime anyway because they are able to get their firearms. Uh, Further, you have people who uh, are flagged on a background check because they share a common name. And also, you can have somebody, no matter how stringent the background check, pass with flying colors because there are no documented offenses in their background. And their motives could be that they want to go shoot up a school. And you can also have somebody who just got out of prison because he committed armed robbery at 18 and uh, learned his lesson, and now he just wants to protect himself. And you're depriving him of his rights, and the the uh, guy with the clean background it's doing nothing to stop him. So that's pretty much most of the reasons uh, that I oppose background checks.
1: Well, you know, my question would be then what about people with, uh, let's say, a serial history of spousal abuse or child abuse or stalking or um, brandishing weapons uh, in an intimidating way and so forth and so on? And let's say they have a pretty long rap sheet at the end of that. I mean, there's pretty good evidence out there that those people are serial criminals in that sense. And should that person then be – Allowed to buy as many weapons as they would like. I mean, that's 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 one thing where we get into an issue here, which you can even then ex, ex, extend that to mental illness. There are some people that are just sociopathic, and you know, there might, in my personal opinion, is sometimes the the bar on the background check for mental health issues is a little too high, um, as we saw in Florida. Um, that someone has to be um, adjudicated as mentally ill and unable to care for their own affairs in order for it to flag. But you can have very violent people with, uh, that are sociopathic, and they, they are these evil people that we talk about. Um, should we allow them? I mean, have they given up their opportunity? Uh, they are not able to handle the rights the most of us enjoy. Uh, they aren't able to go about their daily lives without hurting people and and those are the people that i think people would hope a background check could catch i know it's it can be you can get around it and they might find other ways to do it but do we need to make it easier for those people to obtain a gun
0: again as a, as i've said before this violent crime in this country has never been a, a significant issue uh, just going back to statistics in 1980, we had the worst homicide rate on record in the United States. It was 10.2 per 100,000, or as I like to say it in a percentage, 0.01%, uh, 0.0102% of Americans of those seven or 0.007% of Americans were uh, murdered at the barrel of a firearm of some kind. It's not a substantial issue, and I don't think that infringing upon the rights of all Americans, whether they currently own a gun or would probably buy one in the future, uh, I don't think that that's something that should be done to address a problem that, from statistical standpoint, doesn't exist. And, you know, because... You're instituting a policy that affects everybody in order to try and prevent something that that affects less than a tenth of one percent of Americans on our worst year on record.
1: Well, and I think that's a philosophical difference in the in the sense of how we view laws and the purpose of laws. And, and, and earlier I mentioned speed limits and seat belts and things, and that's, that's taking that out to an extreme. But it's, do you believe that laws also do have some preventative effect? And in, in, in should they have some preventative effect uh, for um, public safety? Does, does the community have a responsibility to promote public safety? And one of the in in my discussions similar to this that I've had, one of the things that emerges is we basically have a difference of philosophy in uh, the community's responsibility to promote public safety versus the individual's responsibility to promote public safety. And what I've noticed a lot is that it appears folks on the gun right side believe it's an individual re- responsibility more than other things, where on the other side, we tend to believe that the community does have a responsibility to try to promote public safety. So maybe that's a that's a root cause of this difference here. You know,
0: um, I, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, um, but sure. I I actually agree with both. To be completely honest, uh, I do think that we as individuals should take our personal security, uh, take responsibility for our personal security. That said, you know it's not. I think that as a community, we should gather together to, uh, you know, in our neighborhoods and uh, have discussions like this, have training like this, just on a, you know, just on a community level or in a neighborhood type level, you know, have somebody kind of like your neighborhood watch guy, but instead of neighborhood watch, you know, his role is to uh, help make sure that everybody's questions regarding firearms and employment and all of that are answered. And so on certain levels, it is individual. On others, it is community. But where I think the real difference is, is that I don't believe that the community should have the authority to uh, infringe upon the rights of others. And as an example of that, uh, if... If your community, if 99.9% of them voted that you should not be allowed to own the property that you own and it should go to the community, that's not how that works. Your property is protected by law and, and by the Ninth Amendment of the Constitution. And it and, uh, doesn't matter how many people, if you were the only dissenting vote on that, you still have the right to own that property because you were the one who owns it. And so – if you transfer that over to firearm ownership, I don't, to me, I don't see that even having 99% of Americans in favor of uh, gun control, no matter how big or how small, is just because they don't have that authority
1: either. Well, and that's, again, we're talking the philosophical difference. I think the... The average American is probably somewhere in the middle of those two, Um, but that's one reason why the background check issue in polling and in general uh, conversation, it polls well. Um, The overwhelming majority of people support it. I think knowing that, um, the serial nature of some type of violent crime and, and other types of crime uh that people just want a stopgap there, almost a little hesitation, um just to try to put some barriers up to make it a little more difficult um for um sociopathic people or a very serial criminals for example into trying to get these weapons. Um, you know, there there's always the story about impulse crimes or crimes of passion or something where someone goes out and gets a gun and then commits the crime. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. That's true. Um, but I, I think that the average American does believe in some limits, and that's when we talk about common sense regulations. I think people want to respect the rights of others, and they want to respect all rights. And there are many of us who would believe that we should have the right to go to the park and not have guns there i, I mean just as if some people oppose gun free zones there are people they just don't feel comfortable having their children uh, in an area with guns and you know we could we could try to dissect why that is but it is true and people feel very passionate about that as well so how do we balance those needs how do we meet the public safety needs of both of these groups, and that's why we have such conflict right now, I think, is there's a lot of people talking at each other and not talking to one another about it. I, I think that's it. Yeah, and I, I'm confident that the, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Neither side of this is going to get everything we want. That's That's for sure. That's just kind of the history of this country. But I think you could make the argument very plausibly that what we're doing right now is not working. Now, it may be working on a statistical level, but in terms of society and the way people feel and the way people, whether they feel safe or not, it's obviously not working because many people feel unsafe. So that's why I think we need to be open to, to different things. And, and the, the the way to get to that is through conversations like this one and, and other conversations in open forums where I really think, I mean, I've done several of these um, forums, and, and if you can establish good gun, you know, good rules where you, you try to reduce sloganeering and you try to reduce the number of talking points that you're required to actually listen a certain number of minutes instead of talk all the time, that that does foster a good conversation about understanding people's motivations and then I think you can have a clearer discussion about solutions after that.
0: I absolutely agree. Uh, I think that I, I think that you're right in the sense that the average American would probably support uh, you know some forms of gun control, whether that be new gun control laws or just what's already on the books. But I think that the reason that they believe that is because. And this is going to sound really bad, but I don't intend it to be. So uh, if I'm running for office in the future, please don't hold this against me. I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to make it sound as bad as it is. But I think that most Americans, um, when they hear an issue like this, they don't really delve down to the depths of either side. They pick one of the sides that sounds greatest on the surface and run with that. And that's why I think conversations like this are so important because I really, really think that if you have these in-depth conversations where you delve down uh, you know, as deeply as you can go, that people will be far more in tune with why they believe a certain way as opposed mm-hmm. to they believe a certain way. And, well,
1: and I think it's not and it's important not only just to understand what why the opposition believes the way they do, but why you believe the way you do. absolutely in terms of and so there's self-discovery there. And that doesn't necessarily mean that people end up changing their positions wildly, but in order to get past of kind of an us versus them conflict, which is another thing that charges this discussion, there's this conflict there. There's, there are people that want to oppress me, or there are people that want to take my guns away, or people that want to shoot me, etc. Usually, the reasons go much deeper than that, and and that's that's a big part. I believe that we need to break past if we're going to solve or address this problem, is to be able to understand people uh, and their motivations. You know, to be able to talk to one another again. We've done too much. Um, too much posting online, too much, you know, reading articles that uh, your friends have posted and so forth and so on versus talking to people about these issues. That, that's why I like doing interviews like this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We need to talk more. And, yeah. you know, you talk about self-discovery. I actually used to support some forms of gun control back in the day. And what got me to change is because I had conversations like like this – uh, typically the vast majority of them were with people that were more like-minded with you than they were with me at the time. And mm-hmm. the more I talk about it, the more I, I realize things like, well, this thing that I support no longer makes sense because I'm arguing this point on these grounds, and logically they don't line up. And, mm-hmm. you know, whenever you have conversations like this, it really does help you solidify or rethink your position. And, you know, the reason that I believe in the Second Amendment in its purest level is because of, you know, the research that I've done and the conversations that I've had. And, mm-hmm. uh, you yeah, I really appreciate your time. I know that we uh, have gone, uh, we're at an hour and 20 minutes now. And I, I really, truly appreciate you coming on, you taking the time uh, to come on the program and, and just talk about this. Uh, I know that we don't agree. And that's okay. Uh And I am I'm just I'm glad that we can talk about this. And I would I would hope that we can do this again.
1: You know, I I would love to. Yeah, I'd love to. I think it would be a very good idea uh, every once in a while to uh, uh, to talk about issues, especially as things come up in the news and so forth and so on. Um, That, uh, you know, it's a good way to remind people that um, there's something behind people's views. And, and just as you mentioned, you know, one of the reasons I came to where I am on this is I've talked to too many victims and I've just talked to, you know, parents who lost their kids, parents who lost their kids at Sandy Hook, parents who lost their kids at the Aurora shooting. And having kids that age, it did something to me, one on an emotional level, but it kind of changed the way that I kind of view the broader perspective. So and I think that we all need to understand there are incidents like that in all of our lives that influence the way we think about these things. Absolutely. So in, or in order to get out of the conflict, we've got to do more talking.
0: Absolutely. These are all complex issues. They're not simple. Yes, and very much so. Even a purist like myself recognizes that, and that's why we need more of these conversations to look at every single aspect. Anyway, absolutely, uh, Ed, I— I'm going to let you go. I don't want to take up any more of your time. You've already been more than gracious, and and I truly appreciate it. If you ever want to come back on and have have another discussion, uh, you have an open invitation, my friend.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You have a good day.
0: You too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. That was an awesome conversation. I truly hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite podcasting app, or even on YouTube as well to stay up to date with our latest episodes and uh please consider sharing this with everybody that you know pro gun pro gun control whichever and uh let's encourage more dialogue uh until next sunday lone star gunners arm yourself with knowledge and share the ammo Lone Star Gun Talk is a Lone Star Gun Rights production. Hosted and edited by Derek Wills. Copyright 2018.